Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. Life's not always been full of laughs for comedian Phil Nickel. For a start, he was born in Britain's number two crap town, not even number one. Moved to Canada, then was banned by his born-again Christian parents from wearing jeans until 17, and once had a terrifying encounter with wild dogs while searching for a Nazi-themed socialist folk music bar in a dark field outside Bangkok. And don't even ask about Trothman. I will let him tell you all about that himself. Please welcome the wonderful Phil Nickel. Calmer in person than I imagined you'd yeah, right. be because I've seen your stage yeah, right. shows and yeah, you're right. off your rocker. <laughs> <laughs> it's as much of a character as Stuart Lee says he's a character, which it is. If you know Stuart, it's I mean it's not as far a cast of a character, but he's actually really gentle and quite. He's not you know he obviously is a bit sarcastic, but he's not as full on. But neither could he be. So know. tell me, what is your stage persona? I've got two different settings. One is for club comedy, the comedy store, the glee clubs, the the stand comedy clubs at full-on frenetic loudmouth bit sweary uh, do, do anything for a laugh like climbing into the audience play the guitar for the tour that I'm doing and for my sort of Edinburgh festival style show which are longer form shows it still is frenetic and crazy but it's le- less sweary more thoughtful and a bit more philosophical you're on a a large tour at the moment tell me where you're going the tour has started already and, and it's taken me all over Britain I've got 35 dates at the present and it's taking me to Canterbury Aberdeen and then to Brighton I think and everything in between is probably the best way to describe it which is your favorite place when you meant br- mentioned Brighton my heart lit up because I'm in a Brightonian currently in exile in London and I love going back to Brighton but where's your best audience do you think across the UK? Brighton is certainly up there I'm a left-leaning left-leaning person but I'm, I'm not a I'm not a soft left-leaning person so you're I'm a quite, hard I'm, left-leaning well I'm, I'm quite con- I'm quite contentious in a lot of ways I don't I don't go with everything but I but Brighton certainly is one of the more open-minded groups but I do like playing this the Newcastle and uh, Aberdeen the Aberdeen Comedy Festival which I've done before should be re- uh, electric because it's the second year of it and it was really successful last year and Aberdonians are are crazy. Is that people. what they're called? Aberdonians? Aberdonians. Are you making that up? Aberdonians. <laughs> I'm, I'm from, Aberdonians? I'm from, Aberdonians? Are you from Aberdonians? 
<laughs> well, you're Scottish, aren't you? I, Even I, though I, you sound like you're Canadian yeah. because you were brought up in Canada. Tell me about the, uh, what's the history? I was born in a place called Cumbernauld, which is really sort of nasty. <laughs> I don't know, if you're from Cumbernauld, I love you, but I've, I was born in Cumbernauld. <laughs> but you're all a bunch of nasty bastards. No, no, it's not. <laughs> it's known, it's known, it's in, there's a book called Crap Towns that comes out every year. It lists the crap towns and Cumbernauld is always number two. Never wins, never wins. But Cumbernauld... Uh, Can't even win that, can No, Cumbernauld is not a place to travel to. It's the end of the line of a very short line from Glasgow. The council of Cumbernauld actually wrote to Channel 4. Channel 4 were doing a TV show where they tear down a landmark in your city, like a, a, a garish landmark. And the city council of Cumbernauld asked them to tear down Cumbernauld ah. and rebuild it. And that's not a joke. <laughs> that is, that actually happened. They wrote into the whole people. Everyone voted and went, can we just tear it down and start again? Why? Is it like <laughs> 1960s? Is it, is it all a 1960s sort of it's, mess? It's a new town. It was designed by an Italian designer. I can't his name slipped my mind right now. But at the time they were designing these new towns, there's lots of cul-de-sacs and lots of little twisty, turny roads. They try and turn it into a country feel. I mean, I've been, I went back on my 50th birthday and it was fantastic. Fantastic fun to go. I mean, I'm sure there are lovely bits of it, but even people in Cumbernauld make fun of Cumbernauld. So it hasn't been gentrified in any way. <laughs> I can't imagine it being gentrified in any way. Although they do have a lovely little theatre there, and the house that my father, my father actually built the house that um, I moved into. He was trying to have it done by the time I was born, but um, I was six weeks old when I moved into the house my father built. And my father is a cabinet maker and a builder and a, a working class man by trade from Clyde Bank, and he. He saved up all his money and built this house, and he couldn't afford to put the roof on it. <laughs> and uh, and which I, is I, not good with a six-week-old baby, by the way. Not at all. Not at <laughs> no all. And, and his mother and his mother. He went to his mother to ask her for the money. She wouldn't give it to him. <laughs> so he had to work even harder to get the money to put the roof on. Would she um, have had the money? Maybe. Why did she not give it to him? I don't know. I think she just wanted him to work harder. <laughs> it's a good. I tell you what. Not having a roof is a good incentive to work harder. It sure is. Well, my my father was a was a builder, a cabinet maker by trade, and he he built this beautiful wall inside this hard uh, wood that he was gifted from one of the men at the church that he used to go to. So it's a bungalow. The entire wall is this hardwood panelled wall with a door that you can't quite see. Like it's got one of those doors that opens that you've got a little key, like a little lock like in a it. Door. Yeah, a little secret door. And it, it separated the bedrooms from the house to the to the common room of the house. Wow. And I went back, when I went back, I was taking a photo of it. And the guy, there was a guy washing his car out front. He went, hey, what are you up to? And I was like, my dad built this house. He went, what? And I said, my dad built this house. He went, are you serious? So I was like, yeah, was 1965, just before I was born. And he went, oh, come on inside for a cup of tea. And he took me inside and he said, oh, we've redone the whole thing. It's all got all new you know kitchen and all the bedrooms are all been done but this wall and he had the wall there wow. and the wall that my father had built from hand he, from and built it from scratch from hand beautiful dark wood paneled like hard wood like and it was gorgeous and he said he said oh this will never go that's the reason we bought the house actually my father bought the house and he sold it to me and so i got a picture of taken in front of the the wall. the wall, the big nickel family wall. But that sounds like something out of a James Bond film almost in Cumbernauld in the 1960s. Yeah. You know, to have this amazing yeah. wooden wall with yeah. a secret. The way I told my father about it, it must, must have been a lot to him. He built the wall, I think, before he probably built this, the roof. <laughs> <laughs> Can afford um, the wall, we can't afford the roof. So how did the family get from, apart from fly, I'm assuming, or yes, maybe they went on the boat from uh, Scotland to Canada? What took you there and how was it? Well, actually, my father told me the story because he's my my dad. My mum's going to be 90 next year. My dad is 87, still going, and all their faculties there. My dad told, was telling me the first time he went to Canada, he had to take a boat, you know, and he was in the, the lower classes, like third class. And it took him months to get there, and he worked as a cabinet 
cabinet maker on government buildings is because they were trying to get young Scot Scottish guys. So I went with a, his brother and a friend, I think, and they worked on these government buildings. And then he came back and met my mum. And then we flew up by the time the 60s. I flew there. It was 1970 by the time we got there. So we all. So you were 10 years old? Uh, no, I was five, five years old. I was five years old. Four and a half years old. I was there for a whole year of kindergarten. Did and you then, remember any moving? I remember little bits about it. I remember being in Canada and it being very strange because we were Scottish and we were working class. I was given my brother's sort of hand-me-down school outfit and I was really small for my age so it was baggy, it hung off me and had sandals on and a little tie and a blazer. I went to school my first day. In Canada, kids don't wear that stuff. They wear jeans and t-shirts so I got picked on. Oh, imagine. <laughs> and I skipped a grade because because I went to kindergarten in Canada. I went Then we moved, then moved back to Scotland because my parents didn't really enjoy living. My mum my didn't enjoy living in Canada for the first year. Mr. Friends, Mr. Mum, so we moved back to Scotland and I, w I went to school for two years in, in Scotland but because I'd already done kindergarten I skipped a grade and I was born in May so I was, al I was already a year young for the people my age. So I was in this class, I was almost two years young and everyone up to everyone's elbow with the Scottish accent. I had a stutter and a lisp. I had a, my Scottish uh, school uniform on and my parents were devout born again Christians so it's, it's, oh. fair, it's fair to say I got, I, I got, got picked on all the time. Oh no, bless you. That's heartbreaking. Well, I was going to say, as many comedians do, yeah. is there a dark past? Well, this is your dark past, the, what keeps you going, the impetus to comedy. Yeah, this is, well, it's actually um, the, sort of the basis of the show that I'm doing on tour, which is called You're Wrong, spelled Y-O-U-R, <laughs> just to irritate the grammar <laughs> Nazis. Talk about my life growing up and how it formed my sense of humour, because I'm quite aggressive and abrasive on stage, but actually I'm not off stage. I, I like Thai green curry and I cook at home and I'm a big softie really. I'm quite intrigued about your parents sort of hopping around. They went back to Canada after mm. a while. They were like, okay, we realised that we made a mistake coming home, we're going back. Yeah. What happened was in the 19, 19, late 60s, 70s, the Canadian government were trying to get immigration happening and they wanted people from Europe and there was a lot of uh, Portuguese and Greek and Italian builders going out to build houses and they needed Brits, they needed Irishmen and Scotsmen and some Englishmen but mainly Scotsmen and Irishmen to go out because they could be supervisors. So they gave them supervisor positions because they needed people that could speak English fluently enough to talk to the, the housing people. Why not the English? Can we not speak well, English I, fluently enough? I don't know if the, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if the English were, were actually builder, were builders like that but that, as far as I could see it was mainly Scots and yeah, I, I touched on this recently with Kirsty Walk. We've had a lot of Scottish people on. We've had Kirsty Walk, George Galloway, Edith Bowman. But Kirsty Walk was talking. She's written a novel which is inspired by people. Two novels, actually, heading to Canada and heading to America from Scotland. And mm. Inspired by the Andy Goldsworthy sculptures, I think they are. We were talking about this. It's like what it must have been like, particularly like when your dad went on a boat to be leaving behind your friends and family going out into the unknown, taking a boat for months and not knowing what you were going to encounter. And not knowing if you're ever going to come back. I think there's a lot of people left in those days to, to not come back. He didn't really say why he came back, but I know he was very close with his mother. His father passed when he was a teenager, so he went straight into a job as an apprentice joiner and then went out there to try and find, create a new life for himself. But I think maybe his mother needed him to come, come home. Um, but at the time, I think he told me, it, I don't know if this is true or in his imagination, but he said it was four pounds to the dollar, Canadian dollar at the time. So when he came home, the job that he had in Canada as a, like a 20 year old 
when he came home, he had four times as much money as his mates who'd been working the whole time as joiners and cabinet makers in Scotland. And so he's, he said he, bought, he had a scooter and all sorts of stuff that you wouldn't have had as a, as a young man. So he's a bit of a bit of a show off, my dad. It's great when that yeah. happens, though, isn't it? It doesn't really happen to us anymore. But I remember going to Australia when we had three Australian dollars to the pound, and yeah. the states when we've got two dollars to the pound. And now I don't even want to look at what it is. Mm. Oh Euro no! Well, we I went to, to New Zealand the first time, and it was five Kiwi dollars to the pound. I remember being in South Africa. We I travelled to South Africa to the Cape Town Comedy Festival, and it was sixteen rand to the pound. It's now about three or four. So you've ended up here, and you're doing really well here. Does it, it feel nice to be embraced by the British audience? Very much so. Very much. So, I mean, I've been here 22 years and I use the UK as a base for all my travel. And, and one of my reasons for coming here was the comedy scene is so vital, fertile. I don't say vital, but it is vital, but it's fertile. And, and when I came 22 years ago, it was really at a peak and it was really the live comedy was the thing to do. Obviously, television comedy has taken over and they've marketed and put it on. So you do have a, a, a kind of a glut of comedy on television, but there's still so much great live comedy place to place to place. So even if you're traveling within this country, Country. But what's happened across Europe and now Eastern Europe and all through Southeast Asia is comedy clubs are springing up everywhere. And because people are speaking English more fluently all over the world. So I've been to Oslo, to Stockholm. This tour is taking me internationally to uh, Estonia, to Latvia, Lithuania, Helsinki, Amsterdam, to Paris, uh, to Berlin, hopefully Barcelona. These are regular comedy shows that happen all year round. No, I didn't know that. I didn't. I obviously knew about the great stalwarts, Amsterdam, Paris, Berlin, but I never knew that Eastern Europe and was uh, was such a good place for comedy. Absolutely, did I did a show in Bulgaria in Sofia, which was a fun. I did three shows there in the National Theatre of Bulgaria, which is exactly what you think—a sort of Soviet-era looking theatre. And we got on stage and it was like a really tinny mic with a with a white <laughs> mic cord cable. It was really weird. But the people that came were over the moon. And the people that came were Bulgarians who were learning English, who were kind of advanced in English. And they're really uh, desperate to have any kind of Western culture. But then outside it was very, very, I don't want to say grim. I don't want to say yeah. I don't want to yeah. I don't want to say grim because that doesn't sum it up right. The, there's a feeling of energy in the place. But it's very, very grey. There's a lot of concrete, isn't there? There's a lot of concrete. Yeah, there are some beautiful buildings, but there is still a lot yeah. of concrete and grey. Mind you, people say that about the UK, don't they? People that aren't used to our grey skies. Well, it depends where you go. I mean, you know, London's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Every time I come back, if we walk across Hungerford Bridge either side, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. I mean, Waterloo Sunset. Every time I hear the song, you can't. If you've been to London, it's hard to, I think, unless you're from Paris or Berlin, if you're from a, a city like Toronto, where I'm from, uh, London is a beautiful city. Absolutely stunning. Describe to me your best experience when you've been doing these My travels? European circuits. Yeah. The European circuits? Yeah, let's go with those Well, first. let's go European circuit. Okay. Do you mean the best show I've had or the best? I don't the know, be just the, the best experience, actually. I'm looking for <clears throat> stories. <laughs> You're looking for stories. Yeah. Well, Tell I've, me a story. Well, I've got lots of stories. I love Amsterdam. Been going to the comedy clubs there. There was one called the Comedy Cafe in the Maxu Plain, which was the fir one of the first comedy clubs there. They used to eat uh, monkey nuts and crack them open while the show was on. And I don't know if you know much about the Dutch, but they've got a great sense of humor, but very quiet about expressing it. If you weren't doing very well, you just hear people cracking monkey nuts <laughs> and the floor would be covered in them. So you could hear people getting up to go to the toilet, you know, and it was just, they had actually had a phone. I'm not making this up. They had a phone on the wall in, in the original comedy cafe. There was a balcony. There was a phone on the wall and a phone at the, on the wall of the stage. So they could ring you and tell you to get off. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, yeah, did you get the call? Yeah, I never got the call. <laughs> I actually used to ring up to them and go, how's it all going? They could <laughs> they, phone you to get they off. They could phone you to get Well, I'm not sure that's what it was there for. I think it was there to make 
the drink sorters, but like old fashioned. But it was an old fashioned phone with a ringer with the dial on it. Did I sit uh, here about you having a wild time in at Pride in Amsterdam? I did. Do you want me to tell you these stories though? Yeah, I mean, this I is do, very yeah. polite. This is very polite. So I was playing at Tumler, which is my favorite place to play in. Tumler is uh, run by a comedy collective, uh, the underground, Comedy Underground. So it's all run by comedians. It's really egalitarian and, it's, and, and the staff are gorgeous. So it was Gay Pride and they decided to take us out. I was with a comedian called Adam Bloom who decided to stay at the club. We'd been out the night before and he was a bit um, worse for wear. So I went down with a friend of mine, a guy that I'd met, Pierre, and we went to this club called The Eagle, which was right beside a club called The Cock Ring. And The Cock Ring's gone now, but it used to be, you know, it was a big dance club and it had a huge metal cock ring was the symbol outside, right? Uh, are, am I am I allowed to talk? Yeah, you're oh, allowed to okay. say cock ring. I, say... I never. I lived in Amsterdam for a while, but I never saw the cock ring. The cock ring. It's. I can't remember the name of the strat that it's on, but it's a, It's it's right off the, the red light district, and I can never remember the. It's a little long narrow road that runs up to the to Dam Square. Beside the cock ring, my friend Pierre is one of the gayest men that I know. He's like ah, he's going for gay man of the year every year. He said, look, let's go to the Eagle next door. The Eagle's got this little red door and it's got an eagle on. It. If I remember correctly, you had to sort of bend down to get in because you know Dutch people are really tall, but for some reason, a really door, and you go in, and then you know the buildings in Amsterdam are long and narrow, and there's like six floors of them with big, little, tiny, thin steps. Really steep steps. So I'm well. standing at the I'm standing at the bar having a drink and you know chatting away to someone, and my friend Pierre comes out. He goes, "Whatever you do, Phil, don't go to the toilet." And I'm like, oh, "What?" He goes, "Whatever you do, don't go to the toilet." And to me, that's like saying, "Phil." Go to the toilet, right? So, so I run, I run up the stairs, and I go into the toilet, and there is a guy sitting in the trough. He's naked, except for a scuba mask and a snorkel, right? <laughs> Trough's about four men long. It's like one of those lovely old ceramics. It's an old building, and he's right in the middle of it. And I was like, and there's people weeing, and he's sort of bending over. And putting himself in the way in the streams of their of their we and and all like and all I could look at think was when in Rome, <laughs> so and I need to go to the loo. So I I started going to the toilet and he leaned over and it's it, so I just thought well may as well he's obviously there for a reason. So I, I weed on the mask and then I try to get some in the snorkel and <laughs> push him down the <laughs> push him down like a cigarette. Uh, and he was really happy, he was smiling the whole time. He loved it. And I went back to my friend Pierre, Pierre and went, that was amazing. Amazing. And when we left, I called some friends of mine in Toronto. I lived with I lived with a gay couple in Toronto, James and Jordan, when I left acting school. And I called James, he's one of my James Watson, if you're listening James Hi, he's one of my best friends in the world. And I said, Look, I've just weed on this guy. He went, Oh, that's Trough Man, he's famous. He's famous. He's he became famous at the rubber balls and he travels around the world going to different gay prides and he pops up places and that's uh, that's him. I should get uh, him on the podcast. Yeah. As long as you he should. Has a wash first. Well, uh, unfortunately he's passed away. Oh no, no. seriously. <laughs> and people always go people always go. And I, and I, I jokingly go, he's hit by a car. No, it's, um, that Did sounds horrible. Did he drown horrible. in a big Yeah, that's, that's, that sounds horrible. But, you know, he passed away, sadly. And you, there is now someone doing a tribute called Son of Troughman. It's not his actual son, but someone doing going to the rubber balls and doing... doing he's, Amer he's American. He was, he was American. So that was my claim to fame for uh, gay I'm pride. I'm speechless. I was gay laughing at him. Now he's dead. I'm not, really sure, I'm not really sure if that's the best story for traveling. Well, there it is. <laughs> hey, that's guys, the, that's the if you story. want to go traveling, go to Amsterdam. <laughs> go to the Eagle. <laughs>
I've taken my mum to the red light district in Amsterdam, but actually I had a very similar experience, which I feel whether I should say it or not, I don't know, but I'm going to say it. Yeah, you can always in edit it out. Berlin, did you ever go to the Kit Kat Club? Uh, not been to the Kit Kat Club. I've heard about the Kit Kat the Club. The Kit Kat Club, we were out partying in Berlin <laughs> with a big group of not people. Not with your mum. Not with my mum, no, not this time. And it got to about six in the morning when you think, where should we go now? You know, and you mm. think, that's a bad move, but where should we go now? So we, we stopped and asked someone, they said, you want to go to the Kit Kat Club? We're like, great. Jumped in a taxi, Kit Kat Club, please. <laughs> It was going like out of town. We're like, oh my God, what are we going to be mugged here? You know, what's yeah. going on? And it pulled up in this warehouse and there was a big velvet curtain. And we, you know, we, we were actually in black tie. We'd been to this posh event. So we were in all these suits and frocks and everything. And we went behind the curtain and they said, oh, you can put your clothes over there. And we just thought it was a language thing. You can put your coat in. So we took our coats off, you know, put them in the cloakroom. <laughs> and then we went yeah. in and it's this big S&M club yeah. when everyone's half dressed and in leather and there was a man on the podium doing something to himself that I won't even talk about there was another man over the standing over the mezzanine level over the bar mm. where you're ordering drinks and he's doing something to himself you're like yeah no. that's my I don't know if I even <laughs> want a drink but my then boyfriend now my husband needed to go to the loo and he's like oh my god I need to go to the loo it's like what you know we yeah. stuck it out we stuck it yeah. out for two drinks we're not gonna you know we're not gonna wimp away from this stuff yeah uh, we all started to get a bit competitive my friend who was in New York she was like yeah we see this sort of stuff in New York all the time and I'm like yeah we see this stuff in London all the time it's like we've never seen anything like this oh, right. so David went to the loo but with trepidation and he said when he was in there he met a man in a gimp outfit and the man in the gimp outfit said to him there's this boy out there I really like him I don't know what to do you know and he sort of confided <laughs> oh. in David and David said to him grabbed his rubber hand arm <laughs> and said follow your heart <laughs> and he had they had a little arm. cuddle and the man in the gimp outfit presumably went off to follow his heart. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. I know, it's a well, good I, well, I went to Torture Garden a, a number of times in mass in Brixton. I mean, it's a fantastic night. I'm, I'm not a fetishist. I'm just, I, as a friend of mine was performing the first time I went, was a friend of mine performing, they have a cabaret room and they were doing a magic, crazy magic act. So, and I've got some, you know, it's um, mad stories, but but there's a there's a certain amount of respect that goes along with those places. So it is a bit like that. It is a bit like I'm just looking for someone to to tie me up. It's a, you know, like it's that. A, to like, me, it was a little bit sad, if I could say that. It felt like there were maybe, excuse the pun, but tortured souls there. Uh, well, 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 maybe. Because I thought that as well. And I don't know if it's a projection. I don't know how wonderfully happy they are in their everyday lives. And I don't know that what the S&M, what purpose it serves. It's certainly, it's not something that I pursued or that, um, but I mean, I'm I'm quite square when it comes to that stuff. I mean, for me, that trough man moment was like a, a life-changing moment, <laughs> I thought. And, uh, and you know, really great over dinner conversation. I but, love the way this conversation has taken a turn. We've gone from travel and comedy to <laughs> S&M and weeing on people. But I know, but it's, but it's my life hasn't always been like that. I also like roller coasters yeah. and, <laughs> but I was thinking of, of crazy places when you're going out of town, you're wondering where it's going. I was in Bangkok at a night by myself. The other comedian that was with me was was a diver. So he'd gone off to do dive night, a night by myself. There's this beautiful five-star hotel. And I was like, well, I'm not going to sit around a hotel. And I'm in Bangkok. And I'm, uh, this is before I was a really, you know, I've traveled the world a lot now. 
at the time, I didn't really know. Uh, someone said, go to the Coast Sand Road. I was like, oh, I'm a little bit nervous about that. I said, I want to go and see some music. So I've, I've looked through the music. I saw, I went to end up in this heavy metal bar that had like a mouth. The, the, the front of the club was a mouth, and the door was one of the teeth that opened up, right? And I went in, and it was like, no one in it. And it was like all, this is before the movies come out, but it was all sort of uh, the Hobbit, sort of Lord of the Rings dripping walls. and But then this tile, black and white tile floor, it was crazy. This throbbing. Thai thrash band singing Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne with long, long hair down to their knees, each one of them just like thrashing around. And I'm like, there's three of us in this big place and I'm just going, this is hilariously weird. And then the guy stops and I can't do Thai, I can't do the Thai language, but they, they stop. Like, Latin on a crazy train. And he starts introducing the next song and I just thought, oh no, no one's going to believe me when I tell them this. <laughs> it's like, these guys don't speak any English at all but they know every single word to every single Aussie song. Oh, it was great. But I, le I left there. I saw in, a, in, their, in their version of Time Out that there was a folk club that did Thai folk music that was written for the unions, Thai un workers unions, so like a socialist Thai folk club. And it was on this address. And one of the features of the place is it, was a, it had Nazi insignia and these Nazi banners, nice. like full on Nazi banners. But the club had been taken over by this group of hippies, by these socialists who sing Thai folk music, right? And I, <laughs> I know. So I'm like, that to me, that's like, Phil, you gotta see this. So I got in a taxi in Bangkok and said, here's the address. I'm show the guy the address. And we start driving. And, I, and, I, and I'm thinking, I, I was like, oh, and this is before Satna, before I had my phone. So we're driving out of town. I'm thinking, oh, this is the, mm. like, Bangkok's now behind us. I'm like, excuse me, I'm going to this address. He goes, yep, yeah, well, just a bit further. And he keeps, keeps driving. I'm thinking, no. And I'm like, excuse me, can you? And I'm in, now in the middle of nowhere. Then I see a row of shops. Now, literally in the countryside, there's a row of shops with a rest, like a restaurant with a couple of tables outside. And, so, and I was like, hey, 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 pull over here. You're taking me out of the way. So I got out. And I said, where is, the, where is this club? Where is, tell me where it is. And he went, pointed down a road. So I was like, oh, I really think I'm getting ripped <laughs> off here. So I gave him the money. I got out and I walked up to this. Uh, There's a young couple sitting. Like, the guy looked like kind of what you'd see in a, in a Thai movie, like a Thai gangster looking guy. Great big muscular guy with the chains on and stuff with his girlfriend in the middle of nowhere. And I said, I'm looking for this address. He went, yeah, yeah, it's just down there. So I started walking down really far away, like half a mile. You could see a little flashing sign of a, of a club. And I got about halfway down and I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? I'm surrounded by wild dogs. I'm walking towards a pool hall. I'm get close enough to see it's just a pool hall. And I'm thinking, this is not where this place is. And I don't know why. I think the dog scared me. The whole thing, I suddenly went, all the hair on my back went up. And I just thought, this is how people disappear, Phil. This yeah. is what you're doing, exactly the thing. You're not supposed to. You're by yourself. No one knows where you are. You haven't told anyone where you're going. And you'll, you'll lose everything. So I turned around. The dog started chasing me. I ran back. The dogs were barking at my heels. And I went back to the guy. Then he, and he was, fortunately for me, he spoke a bit of English. And he was, he was like, oh, mate. No, he goes, I thought you said pool, pool hall. And I was like, no, no. Uh, it's a Nazi club, right? I'm trying to describe it to him, and he's looking at me like, "What are you talking? Yeah, yeah, what are you talking about?" Like he's looking at me like, "What are you talking about?" And I'm going, "Yeah, it sounds really crazy, right?" And he went, "He went, yeah, it sounds ridiculous." He went, "I said, what can what can you do?" He said, "Well, the, you've already come so far to Bangkok that the taxis won't take you all the way into town. It's not worth their while. So you have to take a taxi to this garage 
where it's a turnaround station where other taxis come and loop out. I was that far away. This taxi driver took me so far down, I nearly <laughs> lost my life. It was like a, it was like a dust, dust till dawn type situation. But you never found the Nazi, never found it. Folk music. And I've looked it up. Joints. I've looked it up again, and no one ever believes that it's there. And no one ever believes me. I do. There's a place. There's a place in Manila called the Hobbit House, which. Uh, no, see, this, I'm the kind of person I say. There's a place because I love traveling, and I, I look. And when I was a teenager, there was, a, there was an article in the paper about a place called the Hobbit House in Manila, where all the staff in, in the in the restaurant are dwarves. And I just thought, and it's it's not. I, I just thought, well, that looks like ama- looks like amazing fun. I was reading the Lord of the Rings at the time. This is before the movies, and so I, we got to Manila, and I said to the guys, the comedians, look, let's go to the Hobbit House, and they all laughed and went, "There's no such thing as a mm-hmm. Hobbit House." I was like, "No, it's all. They're all dwarves." And they're like, "Phil, shut up. You just you." winding us up so I turned to the driver this the young driver and said do you know a place called the Hobbit House and he went no there's nothing at the Hobbit House I come up we didn't have smartphones way now we just had the old Nokia's so I couldn't I'm, I keep asking everyone the Hobbit House no it's 11 million people in Manila it's got to be a place called the Hobbit House three days go by the comedians make fun of me hey why don't we go to the Hobbit House we go to the Hobbit House and all the way back after the last gig to the hotel I said, I said we'll go for a pizza and the comedians go well why don't we go see if they serve pizza at the Hobbit House a different <laughs> driver he turns and goes you want to go to the Hobbit House I'm going there's a place called the Hobbit House he goes yeah of course it's famous in Manila I'm like you go to the Hobbit House yeah and we drove the Hobbit House and we got there and they were just closing and the bouncer who's about maybe you know three foot eleven like big but small we went sorry mate you can't come in and we were like no no you gotta let me in because it's the these guys didn't believe me and I explained to him and he went he went well okay you can, you can just have a look we'll come in we're, the bar's closed so we went in they got us a drink a short <laughs> a little joke it's true though they got us a little drink <laughs> there's a place called the Hobbit House owned by a famous Portuguese singer who had a number one hit in Brazil in the 80s he had a friend a couple of friends in the sex industry who were dwarves the sex industry in, in the Philippines is, is if you're I think if you're a a dwarf it's probably a, you know I, I'm maybe it's changed now but I think it's probably be an obvious place for you to go and I don't mean that in a bad way I just think it's you've, unfortunately you fall into it this guy said look I'm going to open a club my band will play he's got a hit song he, and he plays there every, with his band every Thursday and the place fills in people come from all over the world to the Hobbit House and he's, he's saved all these people who are dwarves or little people I should say and I don't even know if, he, if dwarves are correct anymore and he's put them to work so as we left this is true as we left I, being a little cheeky and being comedian I said to the bouncer I said thanks for that I got a t-shirt and everything do you know is there anywhere else where we can go is there anywhere else where there's where there's dwarves working in the city. And he and he looked around like he was, and he went, I leaned in, he went, well, I'm not supposed to tell you this because there's two guys that worked in the kitchen got caught for smoking dope last year. They've opened their own bar down on the beach called Little Guys, and it's open till four. So we're driving across Manila in this van going, let's go to Little Guys. And we got to Little Guys on the beach. So if you go to Manila, there's all, along the, the, the waterfront, there's, it's not actually a beach, it's the bay. There's all these little bars and there's a bar, I don't know if it's still there, it's called Little Guys. You're actually getting in a taxi like, like, where can we go where we can see more dwarfs? I mean, <laughs> well, 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 no, it's because no, they didn't believe me. <laughs> that sounds going to make me sound horrible. I'm, I mean, I, I can only apologize to my to my friends who are little people. I, it was not that wasn't the excitement of seeing pe- little people. It was the excitement of knowing there was a place yes. that I wasn't crazy. It sounds like a brilliant place. Well, I've been Paris. to Australia. I've been, oh, yeah. I've been to Australia, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been in Australia. It's got the Womboy National Park. I love New Zealand, but I was I was married in Australia. 
Uh-huh. I married a woman when I was when I was young in Australia, a new, but New Zealand. Oh, you married a woman? Uh, uh, oh, I thought you were. I didn't no, think you were in that. Uh, oh, uh, no. <laughs> no, I don't know if you're. Are you allowed to marry in Australia now? Yes, you are. Yes, you're allowed to marry in Australia. You I can know. Marry just who you like. I just wor- yeah, but I worry because Australian politics are so messed up right now that they're really fighting. They're fighting a similar battle as they're well, I guess as they are here and in America, where this is the. A lot of right-wing thinking is taking a foreground in, in politics. But anyway, travel-wise, my ex-wife, Kate. Hello, Kate. We're still friends. <laughs> uh, we'll be friendly again. Her father had this little house in a place called Womboyne, which is in the middle of a national park. He passed away when he was in his 90s, and he she was an only child, and he had her when quite late in his 50s. So she he was she was we were, we were quite young when he was quite old. When he was young, before World War One, he was that old that we had tried to join the army and they wouldn't let him because he had flat feet and uh, asthma. So he he stowed away with a dog. He had a dog. He stowed away with a dog to New Zealand. Couldn't uh, they they turn around? He turned back. So he went for a walk on walkabout. What they call walkabout. And he up in this place called Womboy. So this is before the government really. This is when Australia was quite new. It's not that old a country. He landed on this beach. It's like an estuary in the middle of Womboy National Park. It's got like a f- seven-mile-long beach-facing Danger Bay, which is a shark-infested water, and then this freshwater estuary. Set up camp and built a little hut. And then he got a couple of his friends, so there were six houses there. When the state government showed up and said, oh, we're taking this land for the state government, he said, well, we were here first. And they took them to... He'd sort of become a self-made man. He had enough money to take the government to court, and they won the, the right to keep their six houses. The national government then wanted to turn it into a national party. He did the same thing. By that point, he was one of the richest men in Australia <laughs> uh, in the 1960s with a company called Steelcraft who made prams because after the war, he was in Australia thinking when they co- when the guys come back, there's going to be lots of babies born. So I'll make all this money. And he bought, and so he fought the national government and got to keep his place on, in Womboyne on this freshwater estuary, which I was lucky enough to visit. And it's one of the most beautiful places. You can now drive all the way in. They've now put roads into it. But you also you were lucky enough to shack up and marry with one of the, the daughter of one of the richest men <laughs> well, in Australia. Well, That's very I, well, good. Yeah, well, I didn't know Hi, that. Kate. I didn't know that at the time. I didn't. I honestly didn't know that at the time. I think that maybe that's one of the reasons he liked me. Um, yeah, we're no longer together. Anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> but the one point is still there. One point is still there, and you, sh- uh, you should go and visit it. Although she probably, she probably told me not to say that because they like to keep it quiet. I'd love to go. I've been to Australia several times, and but I've only been around the outside edges, and I've got mm. a big trip planned in about a year's time where I want to go to the interiors. I want to go to those quiet little places. I, you know, I've done all the Sydney's and the Brisbane's and the Melbourne's and all that. Right. And I want right, to go. Right. To, I want to go see Uluru. I want to. Yeah. I want to just travel. You, have you to Darwin? No, I haven't been. To so Darwin. Dar- you go to Darwin and you go into go. You can go into the, the Northern Territories. You go into the Kakadu National Rainforest. And we were, you get it. You get a guide, uh, Aboriginal guide takes you in because there's it's on the near the Arnhem Land, which you're you can't go into. You have to get a permit. Even as Australian national, if you're not Aboriginal, you can't go into the Arnhem Lands. I have only seen it in film because uh, Kate's father was able to buy himself a permit. I'm assuming he donated a lot of money to the conservation of the Arnhem Lands. And he showed what you can see. The red sand at the top part of Australia looking up towards Papua New Guinea is absolutely stunning. Closest you can get is Kakadu National Rainforest. And you sleep in the swag. You sleep outside. They tell you, I'm sure they're scaring you, but maybe not. They talk about how the gators, alligators, the crocodiles can come. They come like deep inland away with their hungry. They come all the way up into the into the mountains. 
So you can be swimming in a freshwater pond in the Kakadu National Rainforest and there still might be alligators. There's and so many things in Australia ah, that can kill you. Have you yeah. read Bill Bryson's book on Australia? I think it's called Down Under. Down Under, yeah. yeah it's yeah. the I best opening I haven't read chapter. It, I think it's the opening chapter, but it's got like a chapter on what can kill you in Australia mm. and the list is about 200 yeah. long, you know, crocodiles, funnel web spiders, box jellyfish. Yeah. But yeah. I think that gives the Australians though that sort of gung-ho sort of attitude <laughs> that I love. Yeah. Well, maybe that is, yeah, maybe knowing you can die at any point. I mean, yeah. I, we, we've, we've, I've been chased by large spiders, which funny as a Canadian, because we don't, I think we've, we've got like the Massasauga rattler is the only thing that can kill you in Canada other than... What can kill you in Canada? The, it's called the Massasauga rattler. It's a snake. Oh, yes, a snake. Uh, it's a snake. Been chased by large spiders. I mean, you could be ch you could be killed by a moose, but uh, that, you'd have to be an, an idiot. You could be killed by a chihuahua. <laughs> or a bear. Actually, a bear. You know. Well, that's yeah. true. Yeah, it's, what that chihuahua that that nibbled on its master's neck? She passed out and. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> anyway. Yeah, these things happen. Yeah. Anyway. So uh, anyway, yeah. So, so so New Zealand. I oh, think yes, New so. Zealand, yeah. So what, I mean, I'm really lucky. I've, I've been to every continent but Antarctica. I've been did uh, shows in. I went. I was lucky to go to Brazil with what I do. Rio de Janeiro. I got to interview Bebel Gilberto, who was. The son, oh, the, yes, the great, great grand, or the granddaughter of, of Joan Gilberto, who run, who wrote Girl and from Ipanema. And very well known in her own right. Oh, she is. Oh, yeah, there, there she is, royalty. Mm. Super famous there. And really, really lovely. She's an absolute sweetheart. Beautiful woman as well. I went to Jamaica. I ran the Reggae Marathon in Jamaica, which you can, is on in every December if you want to go and run a marathon. Why is it a Reggae Marathon? What makes it a Reggae Marathon? Well, they call it a Reggae Marathon. You start in, in there's, if you've been to Negril, there's one long strip where all the bars between the road and the water there's all the bars and they're open all day all night they i think they, they i try to empty them out around six in the morning unfortunately or fortunately the mega marathon starts at five in the morning because it gets so hot by nine you've got to be off that you got to be finished every half a mile every mile or so there's a sound system there's a car with speak big speaker on top of it or or they have steel bands people cheering you on and it's just the reggae theme and when you cross through the finish line you get a coconut with a straw in it fresh coconut with a straw and then you can run across the finish line up, down the beach and then straight into the ocean and lie in the ocean and that sounds it, like the sort of marathon that the only sort of marathon that has ever sounded appealing to me the <laughs> reggae marathon the reggae in Jamaica, in Jamaica absolutely well actually we're running out of time so no no I've got so many to tell I you know, Cape Town Durban Durban yeah. stayed, in, stayed in, in the Zimbali Lodge we, we did the, Dur the Durban Comedy Festival they put us in the Zimbali Lodge it was a six star it's a honeymooners lodge in the middle of the, rain, the, the Zimbali National Park so really quiet and, and it was like 10 comedians we were really into in the honeymoon we, lodge I know we were the interlopers because we were like because there's also nothing to do so we were smoking cigars and playing cards until all ours and then the honeymooners would be getting up but we had our own little cottages and they you know we had a personal butler which I couldn't use because I thought I can't use a butler and, and yeah and then but then the guy the guy next to me the comedian next to me he came over and went um, my my butler is just is complaining I go what about because well because you never you're not using your butler and he's he's getting in trouble because he's never been called down I went what are you talking about well well you're you're not you there's a button you're supposed to press if you need something because you haven't used it yet I'm well, I don't want to because I, I feel a little uncomfortable. I'm, I can, I'm happy. I don't need clean towels and sheets every day. So he was like, yeah, but he's getting in trouble. So I, I said, oh, no, I didn't realize. So I pressed the button. He came down. I'm like, yeah, he was really excited. Oh, yeah. And I said, and I said look, I don't want to get you in trouble. So here's what we're going to do. Just come down at 2 o'clock every day and buy a cup of tea. So you come down, have a cup of tea and sit on. We sat at this beautiful balcony that looked over 
like wild monkeys and, and springbok. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Highly recommend this in Valley Lodge. If you're a honeymooner, 100%. No, don't do, go during the comedy festival because there'll be mm -hmm. comedians there. Any other time, it's the most beautiful honeymoon place. It's And you have your own little cottage and it's got door, doors that open onto a balcony looking into absolute paradise. Do you feel lucky that you've been able to do all this travel through your work? I really do. I really do. It's one of the best things I've been able to do with comedy. And, and, I, and I still have so much to look forward to because, as I've said before, I'm taking my show You're Wrong on tour, which is taking me to all these amazing places. Luckily, I'm, I'm able to stay usually for a day or two. And, and I'm doing a month in New Zealand at the Auckland New Zealand Comedy Festival. Ideally, I haven't heard from Australia yet, but I'm hoping to hear from Australia all through Southeast Asia. So I'm going to Singapore and Kuala Lumpur. And I did last year, we did show, I did shows with my partner, who's also a comedian. And we did shows in Tokyo, in Tokyo, Osaka, and Fukuoka. And we were able to go to Nara and go to these the big temples and stuff. If you're in Japan, go to Nara. You know, there's two huge temples with the biggest, I think it's maybe it's the second biggest Buddha in the world. And right beside that is a Shinto temple, one of the oldest Shinto temples in Japan. It's a must-see if, if, you, if you're in Japan. I haven't been to Japan. I think you've traveled more than I have, actually. <laughs> I thought well, I was doing quite well. well I'm maybe lucky. I'm in the wrong business, yeah. the travel business. I should have gone into comedy. Yeah, you could do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've you got could, the skills. You do. You've got the skills. Go on. It, it doesn't matter. After a couple of years, everyone can do it. Oh, yeah, maybe. It's you true. need a lot of confidence, don't you? Or at least pretend confidence to get out there and risk the fact that you might not make anyone laugh. We'll go full circle to the beginning of the conversation. I think I had to build confidence because I had such a bad, not bad, it wasn't a bad start. I mean, I, I'm, my family are gorgeous, but growing up with a stutter and a lisp and a, a being a, a, raised in a born-again Christian family, I wasn't allowed to wear denim until I was 17. I was a nerd and went to a foreign country. I was an immigrant to Canada, even though I was a, you know, English-speaking immigrant. I was still an immigrant and treated as such and got picked on and bullied and moved around a lot. So it's turned me into the person I am today, which is now I've loved traveling and I love meeting other people. And I think it's, if anything was going to heal the ills of the earth, and I'm not just saying it because it's your podcast, but travel broadens the mind and you start to realize that people are the same wherever you go. Absolutely, which seems like a beautiful place to end it. I do have one question to ask you. However, just before I do that, what is unchristian about denim? <laughs> 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 well, I was raised in this uh, the, the Brethren Assembly, who at one point in their development thought that buttons were evil. Ah. So they thought they, because buttons were the new clasp and they come undone too easy. Oh, I see. Clap buttons are so, you know. Oh, so those sort of jeans that just fall off you. Yeah, that leads to sex standing up. <laughs> and, uh, whereas I think they prefer the old, you know, you know how hard it is to get a, a woman's bra off? That, that used to be on everything. Have they not tried wearing skinny jeans and trying to get them off in a hurry? You're well, that's maybe why they moved to Canada, because you've got to wear nine layers, see? You just know. If you're a Canadian, I always say this, the one thing that Canadian, I love Canadians, but Canadian women in the winter dress practically. They wear big hats and big, I mean, and it's, I find it kind of really sexy and gorgeous, to be perfectly honest. But when you go home with a Canadian woman, it's like past the parcel. <laughs> I'm not good with cold. I have no practical clothing. I really don't. Anyway, let me ask you my last question. My last question is always about music because to me and many people agree with me, music and travel go hand in hand because yeah. they it helps you evoke beautiful memories, solidifies a memory in, in many people's minds oh. about travel. So if you had to choose one song, it doesn't have to be your favourite band or artist. It'd have to be one song that reminds you of a special or otherwise travel memory, a time of place of travel. What would that song be? A time and place of travel memory. 
it's hard, isn't it? You know, there's so many because I, tra yes. I travel with music. I love music. I play music. I've written music and I have very eclectic tastes. So I'm not, you know, it's not going to be a Beatles song or a thing. And are you going to play the track? I can't afford to, but I'd okay. Like to. Well, you can put you can put the track on. It's a it's a bittersweet memory. I'd broken up with someone, and I was traveling back from Thailand. I'd been there for eight weeks to and I to sort myself out. I decided to take myself off the grid, and I went to Koh Tao, and I, I went diving, and I've got all my diving certificates. I'm a rescue diver. How about that? And I got really lean. I got, I, I took um, boxing classes, so diving one day, boxing the next day, eating really healthy, uh, riding a scooter around, and then and decided to stay there. I was I enjoyed it so much in Koh Tao. I stayed for another five weeks and became quite friendly with the locals. A friend of mine introduced me while I was there to a band called My Morning Jacket, who write these beautiful ambient sort of rock songs. And the guy sounds a little like Neil Young. And there's a song at the very end of the, the album, Circuital, which is from 2011. There's a song called Moving Away. And as I was flying out, as the plane was taking off to go home, and I was going home to going back to being alone, the song Moving Away, and the song Moving Away is about actually moving away from the person that you are with. And I felt that eight week long trip had helped me move away. And I just I just remember being in floods of joyous, joyous tears. There's my stutter going, my joyous tears as I left Bangkok to fly back to London, my home. Thank you so much, Phil. You're adorable, despite the trough man tales. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week for more Big Travel Podcast.